All right, thank you, Bert. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning there, I can give a little summary of what we've been going through. We're, our series we're in is called We Believe. Uh, as we go through uh, different uh, topics uh, in our Sovereign Grace Church's Statement of Faith, it's been rich. It has been so good. If you have not looked at that document yet, it's a little book, it's in booklet form, or you can go on to Sovereign Grace Church's website and find it in the link. Um, it is rich, and it can be, and I believe it, uh, it is devotional. Uh, it's not some dry document of all these theological words just to kind of say what smart men want to say. Um, <clears throat> Instead, and you've, we've seen it, we, like we read a part today, we've been reading part, passages from it um, each week. But what's really neat about the actual document is that as you're reading a portion, like for today's uh, section on the Church of Christ, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, there are, it looks like almost 10 uh, references, or, you know, footnotes to Scripture. And each footnote is like a reference to two or three Scriptures. And so it is rich. Uh, and if you take the time to read through it and then also look at God's word that speaks to those truths or those statements that we're making, uh, you really get a sense of, um, this is devotional. It really is. It's a worshipful experience uh, to, to think, even like today, thinking about the church, uh, the church of Christ. So um, this has been really good just to be able to sit under the preaching and like, and you can see a progression. We've gone through the sacraments most recently, I think, uh, and the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts to the church. So what we do as a church together, uh, as we, you know, uh, take the Lord's Supper, as, as we obey in baptism, um, and a, as we are, are, are gifted in so many different ways, and we're given gifts uh, by the Holy Spirit, um, and here we are today. We get to talk about what is the church, the gathering. So <clears throat> let me read to you from Hebrews 10. I'm going to read verses 24 and 25, and then we'll pray. All right, let's, uh, let's read. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the inerrant and authoritative word of God. Let's pray. Father, we need you. I need you. Um, I am aware of my weakness, Lord God, and so we need your Holy Spirit to come. Illumine our hearts and our minds. Give us um, insight into your word and your purpose for the church your bride. God, I pray that we would come away uh, strengthened and encouraged in our spirits. I pray that you would, uh, we would come away um, envisioned uh, to be a part of a bigger, a bigger picture, Lord, uh, in, in your church, your bride. Uh, so uh, encourage us today and speak to us today through your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with giving you some data, give you some research data. The Gallup Research Company has conducted surveys in America since the 1930s. 
Um, and they've, in particular, been doing research about church membership, church attendance. And so they regularly will do this research. I believe it's, uh, they do this survey every year. Um, and, uh, or it might be every decade, I'm not sure actually. But they ask the same question every time, since the 1930s. They ask the question, do you happen to be a member of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque? So it's a very broad question, you know, like, are you basically, are you religious? You know, are you a member of, of committed to some sort of religious institution? <clears throat> so now, for decades, since the 1930s, it stayed, the answers uh, in their surveys always stayed right around the 70% mark. So 70% of America would say yes to that uh, question. From 1930, it was just, it stayed steady. If you look at a graph, it's just like this one steady line, maybe going up to like 75% once and maybe down to like 67%, but it's basically stayed 70% until it hits the year 1999. It's so weird enough, so at the turn of the century, it nosedives. I mean, it takes a plummet. Uh, over the last 20 years, you know, from, 20, from, from 1999 to 2020, data from the 2020 uh, information or uh, survey shows that church membership fell below 50% for the first time since they started asking that question. So that means, do the math, less than half of America claims to be a member of a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Now that can be very broad in definition, right? Like what do the people think they mean when they say they're a member? What, what do the questioners mean when they say, are you a member? It could be anything, right? Like, yeah, I'm a member, but that means I go on Christmas and Easter, but I'm still a member, you know, or what have you. Or, um, so there are other research groups like the Barna Research Group. They dove a little deeper into their research. And so in their State of the Church Study 2020, they looked at trends in church attendance and membership. And so they broke down respondents into two categories. Okay. Um, one category is called the practicing Christians and the other category is the churched adults. So the churched adults comprised about 49% of adults in America, kind of lined up with the other research that we, we've talked about from Gallup, right? And now these are people who have attended a Christian church, get this, at least once in the last six months, okay? 49%, less than half have attended that little. So maybe they are those Easter Christians or those Christmas Christians, right? <clears throat> The practicing Christians group is a subset of that group, and they attend at least monthly. And then they also say that their faith is very important to their life today. So you see uh, an, you know, an increased commitment level. I mean, still only monthly though, right? Once a month going to church. That's considered a practicing Christian. All right, so those are the groups that group, the committed Christians or the, the practicing Christians, comprise about 25% of Americans, you know, adult Americans. So only one in four adult Americans attend church once a month, at least. There you have it. That's America. Church attendance is not a priority for the great majority of Americans. 
And this research was all done before the pandemic. So even less people are attending church now regularly. And especially, and this is interesting, especially younger people. Uh, where a third of people under the age 30 are attending church less regularly since the pandemic. So in general, uh, they found that since the pandemic, pretty much everyone's coming back to church, pretty much. And what they mean by that is like 80%. So we've already kind of dropped off another 20% of the general public who used to go to church regularly, 80% are coming back. But less so, it's like a concerning kind of trend with the younger generations. They're just, yeah. why? Why go to church? I've kind of found out over pandemic, uh, I'm doing all right. Maybe that's what they're thinking. So it raises the question, how important is church? Is it just a re religious social club? I mean, can't, can't I get the same benefits from a rich, vibrant neighborhood Bible study? We're a group of Christians where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus. There he is in the midst. Right? Is, is that not the church? Now, the lockdowns pushed technology to the forefront, right? And live stream church services became ubiquitous. It's a big word for meaning everywhere right? Live stream services became the norm. We had to push our technology use um, quicker than we had anticipated because of the lockdown. We now have a live stream service. So here's the question. Can a Christian living in Ohio attend and be a member of a church in Texas or Seoul, South Korea? Why not? What's the difference? Now, God's word paints a picture that's much richer than that. A beautiful picture of the local church and the importance of not even just regular attendance, say, more than once a month, not just that, but a committed life fellowship within the body. Not only is church important, it is essential to the Christian life and the mission that God is on. <clears throat> like every good pastor's college student, I have three points in our message today. And so, our first point, we're going to actually take a look at the verse preceding our passage today, verse 23 in Hebrews 10. So if you're still there, you can look up just a little bit and uh, you can track along while I read verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. My first point is hold fast. We hold fast to something because we don't want to lose it. 
Whatever it is that we are holding on to is precious to us. And losing it would be devastating. No, I'm not going to talk about the Lord of the Rings. I'm going to talk instead about children and their blankies. Children and their stuffed animals. Maybe you have one still. I know as a child, I probably clung to a stuffed animal or the blankie of my choice a little bit longer than I probably needed to. Probably a few years even. Some children have a special connection and cling to that stuffed animal into their young adulthood. I'm not going to name names, but there is a child that I know who's taken a stuffed animal all over the world. (laughs) It is no longer pink. I don't think it's been pink for years. I think it's been gray and threadbare. It's been sewn back together, I don't know how many times. And and it's losing, it had lost its eye, right? So So Kathy had to stitch its eye closed, had to restuff it. And it will not be lost. That is precious. That little bunny is precious. And my daughter would never want to let go of that little bunny. Don't take them away. Our kids will cling to them desperately, right? With determination and zeal, then, we are told to hold fast to something here in our passage. We are told to cling desperately to the confession of our hope. And so what is it that we confess? What is it that we need to cling so desperately to and hold fast to? When we are baptized, we publicly proclaim, we confess that Christ is our Lord and our Savior. That there is no other way to heaven. That we trust in His sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. Our trust for eternity with him in heaven is placed squarely on the gospel, the good news. This is our confession. There's nothing that can take that away from us either. So we need not waver in our confession. I might confess that the Cleveland Browns are the world's best football team. I might confess that, but my, co- my confession would be completely baseless. Um, and, and if I am in my right mind, my confession should waver, right? I should, it actually should change, okay? They're not the best not even second best, right? I mean, they're not even close. What would cause a Christian to waver in their confession of hope? Because we all do. Satan has his tactics of whispering lies. And our flesh, weakened by sin, clings to those buys into them. You're a fraud. You don't really believe. You don't have faith. 
Faith in what? God doesn't have time for your constant mess-ups. You are a failure. Can't get it right. And you know what? You never will. Those are lies. We are told to hold. Hold fast. Hold on. Hold on to the truth. What does Scripture tell us? What is the truth? How do you battle lies that are so easy to buy? Jesus tells us in John 6.39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Tell that to those lies that you are hearing. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Jesus is holding on to you. So let us hold on to the truth. Fight the lies of Satan with the promises we find in God's word. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3:3 tells us, "But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one." Jude 24 tells us, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Think about that. Do you notice that in Jude 24? You're not the one presenting yourself before the glory of God on the last day. You don't have to say a word. You're not the one representing yourself. You're not making the argument. Who is? It's Jesus. Father, here's my son. Here's my daughter. They're blameless. God is the faithful one. Jesus is the faithful one. And when he says they are blameless... Faithful and true in what he says. So when we waver in our confession of faith, we look to the one who is faithful. We can hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. So this is a fight. This is a knockdown, drag out fight. I know we are in the fight for the truth, to hold fast and cling to our confession for the hope that we have. If you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ and if you are breathing, then you are fighting. It is a fight. No one coasts through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everyone's faith wavers once in a while. If this were not true, the author of Hebrews wouldn't have written that encouragement in verse 23. We all need this encouragement, this exhortation to hold fast to the confession of our faith. But here's my concern, church. This is my concern. My concern is for those who are giving up. Maybe you're going through the motions. Maybe you've heard those lies too many times 
you believe them. You've bought the lies of the devils for so long that they don't, you don't even know what it looks like to live in the light of the hope of the gospel. Hold. Hold fast. Look to Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with the gathering? Isn't this an individual fight? This is within myself, right? A lot of this is my own, just my own thoughts. And the lies of the devil coming to me. So what does this have to really do with the gathering? God wants us to hold fast, but he didn't design us to do it alone. There is no Lone Ranger Christian. In fact, he designed us so that doing it alone is impossible. So that brings us to our next point. My next point, I just title it, Provoke. Provoke. Verses 24 and 25 again say this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Provoke. The Bible uses several different metaphors to describe the church. Um, we've heard about them several, so many times. Um, one of them is the metaphor of the body, right? We are the body of Christ. The members of a church all have unique roles and giftings and callings, just like a human body has many parts, all working together, right, to glorify God. Another metaphor is that we are likened to a family. God is our Father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Living in love and harmony. Uh, we're also called the bride. What a beautiful picture of Christ's love for us and his commitment to us, unending uh, forever commitment to us, right? There are other metaphors as well that help us understand what the church actually is, like God's house or the temple of God built with living stones, you and I. Living stones. We read what our sovereign grace uh, statement of faith says about the church too, right? Um, I'm trying to maybe make a succinct definition of what a church is. Here's my attempt at it. uh, The church is a body of committed Christians regularly meeting that is marked by the faithful preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, meaning the Lord's Supper and baptism, the proper exercise of church discipline, kind of see the boundaries of what makes the church there. Right? We've been taught well. The word church comes from, in the original language, I should say, in the original language of the New Testament, the word is Ecclesia, and really a more literal translation, a more um, accurate translation really is the gathering or the assembly, not the word church. Over time, you know, thousands of years, we've, um, we've come to know and use it as the word church. Now, the English word church can have very many meanings, like it could mean a building. It's, you know, we come to church Right, But when the author of Hebrews uses that word ecclesia, whenever we see the word church in the New Testament, it does not reference a building. 
a physical building. We know that. We know that. What we need to remember is that church is not a building, but it is a group of people gathered together. So, although there isn't an explicit metaphor of the church being a platoon of soldiers, I'm going to use that one. Uh, I mean, our lives in Christ are likened to being in a war, right? Um, As we look at today's passage in Hebrews and the call to stir up one another to love and good works, I picture the people making up the church being in the slog of war together. We're in the spiritual trenches, the world, our flesh, the devil is assailing us, and we're called to fight together as a unit. And when one soldier gets hit and is down, we don't leave them behind. We lift them up. We encourage them. We pray for each other. We serve. We work together to accomplish the objective that we're given. To glorify God by making and maturing disciples of the Son by the power of the Spirit. And the mission we have, the mission we have as a church is nothing short Cosmic. Let me read to you from Ephesians 3.10. It tells us how central and important the church is to God's mission. It says, so that through the church, ecclesia, through the gathering, this body of people, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers of and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you hear that? In this cosmic fight that includes the universe, and the spiritual rulers and authorities, God has chosen not a building, not a king, not a group of the elite of the elite, right? He's chosen us. Chosen his church, his body, to put on display his varied, his diverse, his myriad, his manifold wisdom. It's in full view for the whole universe to see, showcasing it through who? You and me. Normal people. Messy broken, needy, hungry. He's chosen to use people desperate for him to showcase his beauty and glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saying, look at my church. Look at how glorious my wisdom is through them, those people, my people. We're part of this. We get to be a part of this. That's us. This mission that we're on together is massive. We're to stick together to get it done. Earlier in this book, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it gives us an exhortation to this, underlining the importance of this mission we're on together. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are in the trenches together together. 
We're calling each other to fight. We're exhorting one another to fight that good fight. And so Hebrews 10.24 tells us to consider, to think about how we can do that. How do we stir one another up to love and good works? As a teacher of 10-year-olds, fifth grade, how many fifth graders are here? Any fifth graders? None right now? Any 10-year-olds? There we go. All right, you're not a troublemaker. I'm going to talk about the troublemakers. I have a certain number every single year. It's a guaranteed a certain number of students who cause trouble in my classroom. And they all come in different forms, right? <clears throat> the ones that are easier to deal with are the ones that are just out, out there. They're just upfront about it. They're either goofballs out, out there being goofballs, or they're angry, and they're out there being angry. They're easy to deal with. You know, I have a certain way of dealing with them. Um, uh, I, and I have varying levels of success, but it's pretty straightforward. What, how to deal with them. The ones that are harder to pin down, though, are the ones that stir up the trouble, right? They're in the background. They seem to be the victims in conflicts early on in the year, and so it's like it takes me a couple months to figure it out. So-and-so, Johnny over here, man, he's just, I mean, people are picking on him, or there's like people angry all around him. I'm just going to move him over here in the room. All the conflict follows him. He's like having trouble over here too. It's like, it takes me a bit, but I'm like, okay, I see what's happening. I catch him every so often, right? I'll notice that the trouble seems to follow him. Um, when I notice that trend, it's often that they know how to provoke. They get under the skin of their neighbor, right? With side comments certain looks when i'm not when i got my back turned toward them they can say the insults because they know exactly the word to say that will get under the skin of their their neighbor they know exactly the volume to say it so i don't hear it but all the other kids do right around them right and they won't let things go they won't let it let them alone they persist needling talking under their breath, insulting, loud enough for their neighbors to hear and get them angry. They like to get things stirred up and riled up. So when I finally actually get to talk to them, I, I, that's what I do. I'm like, I, I actually do this often. I use this, this emotion. I'm like, you're just stirring up the pot, aren't you? You're just stirring up the trouble. That's not promoting peace. Don't, you don't have to have the last word. All right? Um, so they are really good at provoking to anger. And here's how they're good. They are deliberate, they are intentional, and they're persistent. We are called to stir up one another, right? But not to anger, but to love and good works. We are to give those side comments of encouragement. We are to give those looks of affirmation, warmth and love we are to give a constant barrage of pointing each other to christ we are to provoke one another to love so we must be deliberate we must be intentional we must be persistent in our encouragement we must look for ways to lift one another up go to community group 
Go to community group with the intention of giving a compliment. Pointing out evidence you see in someone that God is working in their life. Pray for one another. Ask each other what you are learning in your Bible times. Confess your sins to one another. Encourage one another. Ask each other, are you taking time to read God's word on your own? What is he teaching you? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Point out when you see someone treat others with kindness. Thank those who serve. Invite others to serve with you. Ask your friend why they didn't make it to community group. Sing. Sing together of God's mercy, of his glory. There's so many ways to provoke each other to love and good deeds. And here's another thing. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Be persistent. Don't stop. Actually meet together and keep meeting together. Sunday morning attendance is baseline. There are many other ways and many other opportunities to meet on top of that and to encourage one another on top of that. But Sunday morning is baseline, not once a month. We need it every day. We need it every week, right? Remember, we are in a war and we need each other. The Bible's not calling us to be loosely affiliated believers coming together when we need a pick-me-up. We, are not, we can't use the excuse of, oh, I belong to the universal church. That's why I don't need to be a member. That's not an excuse. We're not coming to church looking only to be filled or entertained. David Mathis, uh, author, uh, says it well in his book, Habits of Grace, when he writes, true fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears huddled in the backfield only in preparation for the next down. That's what we're doing right now. We're in the huddle. Encouraging one another before we go out onto the field. We're doing life together and we're pulling each other up when we fall down. There is special grace in Sunday mornings. You see, we gather here today, we gather on Sundays in defiance of our enemy. We sing our hearts out to our King. We get fed from the eternal and inerrant word of God. We remember the sacrifice of our Savior in the Lord's Supper. And occasionally we get to just rejoice and celebrate and go crazy when the baptism of a new believer happens. And then we do it all over again. And then we do it all over again. And then we come again. This isn't a got to Like, oh, I got to go to church again. All right, that's right, it's Sunday. No, 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 no. Church, to get to. When I truly see my spiritual state, I know I need Sunday morning. 
I need the church body. I need each and every one of you. I need your energy. I need to see you worshiping. I do. I need to hear your voices. I need to hear your prayers. I need to see your smiles. I need your encouragement. And I even need your tears when appropriate. I need to know that I'm all right in Christ. Authors Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman put it this way in their book, Rediscover Church. The point is not that attending church makes you a Christian. The point is that attending church is what Christians do. It demonstrates that the Spirit of Christ is in us. And therefore, we desire to be with Christ's people. And I hope you can see that God has designed this to work best in the context of a local church. And it doesn't, just doesn't work when you claim you're a part of that universal church. You can't truly be in obedience to God's word if you're not committed to a local body of believers. How can you work through the slog of war without a platoon? It's just an excuse to not be committed. So why? Why? Why do we do this? Now, other than simply obedience, why do we do this? What's the end goal? Well, for my last point, I'd like us to take even a broader look of the broader passage, the broader context of our passage, and actually go back a little bit more to verse 19. So if you're still there, you can read with me starting in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Church, this is the third let us statement. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. My third point is a shorter one to draw near. Draw near. Before Jesus came as a man, the high priest of Israel would enter the Holy of Holies through the curtain in the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord only once a year to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And this was the room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and the mercy seat of the Lord sat over it. No one was allowed to enter this special room. No one was allowed to draw near. It was separated by a great curtain. Don't draw near, lest you be consumed 
by God's wrath and die. Why? Because that room signified the very presence of God himself, God Almighty. There was an elaborate ritual of cleansing the priests for their duties. They sprinkled them with blood uh, from the sacrificed animal. They sprinkled the things with blood so they would be uh, cleansed. They, uh, they had a ritual washing to spiritually pur- purify themselves in order that they could perform these duties in and around the tab- tabernacle. The high priest represented the people of God. So the common Israelites did not come close to God in that way. But, but, church, but when Jesus came and sacrificed himself on the cross, defeating death and canceling our debt of sin, he became the way for us to access the very presence of the living God. It's difficult for us to fathom the magnitude of this, 2,000 years removed. But just thinking of the very nature of God himself, his omnipotence, his perfection, his holiness, can give you somewhat of an idea of what a monumental thing this is. Everything changed the moment he died. Everything changed. The curtain was torn in two. And therefore, those who have faith in Christ have access to God himself. So we can draw near. And by placing our trust in his death and resurrection, we now can draw near to God himself with confidence, with a true heart. Not because of our perfection, not because of our faith even, or not because of our works, of what we've done. We're covered in the blood. The perfect Lamb of God. And we can do what was previously unthinkable. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Draw near to him. That is why we fellowship. That is why we fight this battle together. Not as lone rangers. That is why we gather. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God. We are your people. The sheep of your pasture, Father God, we need you. But we glory in you, Lord. In your plan of redemption, you have called together a people. Called us out of darkness. Called us together. Thank you, God. Thank you for bringing us together to glorify your name and to hold out to the universe how wonderful our Savior is. May we do that, Father God, with true hearts sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. May we glorify you together. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.